Well, I'm excited to kick off a new teaching series next week called Intentional Family, where we're going to talk about marriage and parenting and life together as family. And uh, I want to encourage you to be here to invite someone to come with you. Uh, we're going to talk about some really practical things from a biblical perspective. And, um, and, and I know God's going to work. So um, one of the things we're going to talk about is uh, how to navigate strong-willed children. I don't know if anybody had strong-willed children or have them. Okay, I'm not the only one. Uh, I'm batting 500. My wife and I have four children. Two of them were strong-willed and two of them were um, blessings. So um, uh, we're just gonna talk about some real practical matters related to marriage and parenting and family and doing life together uh, in a way that's intentional. So I hope you'll be back next week. Uh, this week, we're gonna wrap up our current series called Swimming Upstream. We're just talking about some, some really strategic issues related to our culture. And today we're gonna talk about heaven and hell and answer the question, do they really exist? Uh, you may have seen this week, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon is hiring a group of scientists to research anti-aging. He's investing heavily in a firm that is working on biological reprogramming technologies that are designed to extend human life. <laughs> I can't help but think that if Bezos figures it out, that we could all have younger, healthier versions of ourselves. And for those of us who are prime members, we could get that delivered in less than two days. <laughs> I mean, how amazing is that? <laughs> Elon Musk, who is a competitor of Mr. Bezos, actually responded by saying, and if this doesn't work, he's going to sue death. <laughs> because as we all know, death is a reality in the world in which we live. It's, it's not surprising really on some level that Jeff Bezos would research so strategically anti-aging, spending millions upon millions of dollars because we all know that death is a reality in this life. It's all something that we deal with, that, that we encounter. But there's a truth really beyond just the reality of death that, that is actually a foundational truth. And, and it is this, that death is not the end. Now, there are many today who just see death as an end. There are many today who, when they lose a loved one or a friend, you know, like they, they comfort themselves by thinking, well, they're in a better place. And, and, and many in our culture tend to have some type of optimism. And I understand why, because death is, is, is so real and it has such a gravity attached to it that, that's, that everyone's doing the best they can to process it at times. But the reality is death is not the end because human beings were not made to experience death in God's original design. And therefore in experiencing it, we, we've all wrestled with the gravity of it. And I think we've all dealt with the reality that, that there is something beyond it. We, we've experienced that longing. We've, we've experienced that desire for hope. Every, everybody, I, I think, is like that, where, where, where there, there, there's this longing in us for something better, something that's beyond death. And the reason for that is this has always been God's design that we live without death in the world. Because here's, 
Here's our key takeaway for today. Everyone lives forever somewhere. And God's original design was that we all live together with him, with each other. But because of evil in the world, because of sin and evil in us, now we understand that God's judgment is on the world. It's on the world around us. That's why we have death and decay and tragedy and evil and brokenness at every level. And, and, and therefore, we, we, we wrestle with this longing. And there are many in our culture who wrestle with this longing for something more or something better without being able to articulate what that is. And today, it's so important for us to understand that, yes, everyone does live forever somewhere, but not everyone gets heaven. And we're swimming upstream to hold to that truth. But if we don't hold to that truth, we will miss out on the hope that God has. And we will also fail to be the witnesses that God has asked us to be. The sobering reality before us today that even Jeff Bezos understands is that death is inescapable for us apart from God's intervention. And everyone lives forever somewhere, everyone. Ecclesiastes 3 says it this way, I love this. God has made everything beautiful for its own time. And look at this. He has planted eternity in the human heart. We've talked about being made in God's image. This is a part of what it means to be created in God's image. We as human beings contemplate things like eternity. We as human beings are keenly aware of our mortality, of our finiteness, the fact that we are not immortal in the way that God is, right? I mean, we, 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 we contemplate things like the meaning of life. We have a conscience. And, and the reason for that is we're made in God's image. We're made to reflect God's glory and, and as the, as the author of Ecclesiastes says, God's put eternity in our hearts. Every single one of us are made to live forever. And here's the reality. We will live forever somewhere. Either in a place called heaven or a place called hell. And part of the confusion of our culture is attributed to the number of fascinations and publications now concerning near-death experiences. Over the last 15 years, we have seen numerous near-death experiences published and now even turned into major motion pictures. Bestsellers like Embrace by the Light, Beyond Death's Door, Life After Life, 90 Minutes in Heaven, A Journey to Heaven, Proof of Heaven. These are all works based on human experience and human subjectivity to where there are many now thinking of an afterlife, thinking of a heaven, and, and the realities of what they're processing are rather unique. <laughs> I'm mindful of of, of the, the book, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven by Alex Malarkey. He describes uh, an incident of, of, of having a, an accident and then going to heaven. He says in this book that Satan has a funny looking mouth and a few moldy teeth. Of course he does. And, and, and he's got all these unique descriptions, but then he later confessed that he made it all up. His father cashed in on it. And at the end of the day, we would collectively say it was just a bunch of malarkey. <laughs> 
We think of heaven is for real, really the number one top seller in Christian reading over the past 10 years. Colton Burpo, a four-year-old boy, said he went to heaven. He received a halo and wings that were too small, sat on the lap of Jesus while angels sang, and he met the Holy Spirit, who he describes as kind of blue. All of these fascinations have, have, have promulgated themselves actually into the church where I think, and I'm, I'm concerned, that you have more Christ followers buying in to this subjective speculation than you do the authoritative word of God. And I don't question anybody's motive or I don't question what anyone thinks they've seen or experienced, but, but the reality is God has told us that no one will go to heaven and come back from heaven and describe what heaven is like outside of the visions that God has given to the men that we have in scripture. Proverbs 30 says this, but who... Who goes, other than God, up to heaven and comes back down? Who holds the wind in his fist? These are rhetorical questions. The answer, no one. John 3, no one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the son of man who has come down from heaven. Here's what we find in scripture. Every single account of heaven and hell in the scriptures are, are, are either statements from Jesus, teaching from Jesus, right? Or visions of some type, specifically thinking of heaven. These are not journeys taken by dead people or people who have near-death experiences. And these visions are very, very, very rare. You, you can count them all on one hand. Actually, only four biblical authors are given visions of heaven and wrote about what they saw. You have the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel, and then the apostles Paul and John. There are two other biblical figures, Micaiah and Stephen, that got glimpses of heaven, but what they saw is merely mentioned and not described. Listen, the reason for this is that God does not want us to become distracted by the details. He wants us to be focused on him and his glory. The reason God doesn't give us more information of what angels are like, or the reason God doesn't give us like detail after detail after detail about what heaven is like, because he knows as human beings, we would become more enamored with the details than we would his glory and his majesty. And so I just want you to understand that we need to be very, very careful what we see in culture. We need to be very, very careful about the trends in our society that lead us toward just this general understanding and acceptance of heaven as, as, as just a, a little something different from earth. No, what we find through God's revelation is something that is authoritative. I want you to know there is a source we turn to to grasp an understanding of heaven and hell. It is actually the number one bestseller of all time. <laughs> Because God's given us what he wants us to know about heaven and hell. We don't have to add to it. We don't have to sensationalize it. We don't have to speculate about it. God has given us everything he wants us to know and everything he wants us to know centers on his glory. Because let me just, let me just tell, make this perfectly clear. No single human being in history has ever encountered the glory of God without massive fear and an overwhelming sense of their sinfulness and their smallness. When people encounter a vision of the glory of God, they need a diaper. It's a really big deal. They don't, 
they, they don't write books or tell stories about it as if it's some casual experience talking about the Holy Spirit as a color or, or angels as having X, Y, Z or Satan having moldy teeth. No, no, no. When you encounter the glory of God or like the very few men in human history have encountered a vision of heaven, what you find is a tremendous gravity a sense of our smallness in comparison to God's glory. And the focus of the Bible is ultimately on the glory of God, not the details of heaven. But the details that God does give us, just the broad picture he gives us of heaven and hell are enough to remind us that every single one of us will live forever somewhere. What God has given us is enough to communicate to us both the horrors of hell and the hope of heaven. And so we need to be mindful of both of these realities because actually Jesus talked about them both. We'll start with the realities of hell sobering truths about hell. It may surprise you if you're new to Christianity that Jesus talked more about the existence of hell than he did the existence of heaven. Tim Keller said, if Jesus, the Lord of love and the author of grace, spoke about hell more often in a more vivid, blood-curdling manner than anyone else, it must be a crucial truth. And it is. Here's what we learn in the scriptures about the eternal state of judgment. I have seven descriptions of hell based on the authority of what God has revealed to us. First of all, we learn that hell is a place of default destination. It is the default destination for every single human being on planet earth. Because every single one of us sin against God's rightful rule in our lives. Every single one of us have an innate selfishness that leads us to the conclusion that we would be better off to govern our lives than God. And God has given us his word. God's given us actually the moral law throughout our history to remind us that we are always going to fall short of, of his righteous and perfect standard. This is what Paul saw about in Romans three. Check this out. He says, obviously the law, the moral law of God applies to those to whom it was given for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Here's Paul saying, listen, you can take, let's just take the 10 commandments. Let's just take the moral, the foundation of the moral law of God. How many of you have kept every single one of those perfectly? Ain't nobody gonna raise their hand today or you're a liar and you violated the moral law of God. <laughs> right? Here's what Paul is saying. That's designed to remind us of our need for God's help and intervention. The, the law is like a teacher. He, he's saying the ultimate purpose of the law is, is actually loving in nature. It's to show us and to remind us that we need help that we can't get to heaven on our own. And as a result, that means hell is our default destination. 
That's why Paul says in Romans 3.23, for everyone has sinned and we all fall short of God's righteous standard. Can I correct the misunderstanding that even many in the church have today? Listen, mankind is not spiritually neutral. There is a misunderstanding in the, even in the church today that somehow through God's work of common grace in the world, you know, he brings us to a place of spiritual neutrality where we have the same freedom of choice as Adam and Eve. And I, I'm just here to tell you that is absolutely not true. You know what the Bible says about our current spiritual condition? We are dead in our sin. Dead. Now, does God work? through the power of his spirit to bring us to a place where we interact with his overtures of grace and mercy and we volitionally and willingly respond to that and, 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 and submit to Jesus as Lord, yes. But all of that happens first and foremost because of his kindness and his initiative, not ours. We're not neutral. Dead people don't act on their own. They don't take initiative, right? They don't do anything. And spiritually, every single one of us are dead in our sins, meaning that we actively and continuously, apart from God's initiative, go our own way, submit to our own rule, and reject his lordship and his glory. That's what we all instinctively, naturally do. That's why Paul says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead. We're not neutral. No, we are guilty of rebelling against God over and over and over again. And as a result, hell is our default destination. We only come to salvation through the grace and initiative of God. That's why the scripture says we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. We need him. I've told this story before, but it bears repeating. I, one of the very first things I ever did in ministry, I'm a young, young, young pastor. I don't, I don't even know if I had a pastorate yet. I was just serving at a church and I went to a nursing home one Sunday afternoon to, to just to give the gospel and put together a worship service for the residents there just to be a blessing to them. And, and I thought, hey, I don't really know what I'm doing yet in ministry, but we're gonna sing a few hymns and I'm gonna share the gospel. I mean, who could possibly mess that up? This guy right here. We went in and we sang some hymns. One of the hymns we sang was Amazing Grace. Thought, who in the world would not like Amazing Grace, right? Surely I'm not gonna get in any trouble with Amazing Grace. I did. Lady came up to me after the service, irate with me. She says, I can't stand that hymn, Amazing Grace. And I'm like, whoa. This is like one of the first people that's ever interacted with me, like criticized and like, she, she is not happy. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, man. Like, I was just trying to be a blessing. And she says, I don't like it. And you should never sing it again. I'm just like, well, what, can, if you don't mind me asking, like, what, why, why, why does it bother you so much? You know, I'm new at this. I'm trying to figure this out. And she says, I am not a wretch. And I'm like, well, actually, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure if I can get my actual opinion on this, but <laughs> man, she was hot. I mean, she was not happy. I mean, she just, I don't know her religious tradition. I, don't, I mean, I don't know where she's coming from. I just, I thought, hey, I'm like some 20 year old kid showing up, trying to be a blessing, sing a few hymns, share the gospel. And I got roasted 
over amazing grace. And she said to me, I am not a wretch. And the truth is, I mean, she's kind of articulating what most people think. I mean, most people honestly today don't consider themselves as bad as they are before a holy and a righteous God. Most of us grade ourselves on the curve. I mean, just look around, right? It's not hard to find someone that you stack up better against, right? I mean, look around the room right now, literally look around. I mean, you'll find plenty of people that you, no. I mean, she was a little over the top in her response, <laughs> but I, I don't think she was articulating something that most people would disagree with. Now, I'm not perfect. Now, I, I know, I, I mean, I, no, I know I mess up on occasion, but there's always a but. And I just want you to understand, I'm saying this in love to you. Your rebellion against a holy and a righteous God is complete and total. And it's 100% on you. And it's 100% on me. That doesn't mean that every single thing we do violates God's moral law, but it means that everything we are in our entirety, that every action we have is in some way tainted by sin and selfishness. The fact fact that we are dead in our sin does not mean that every single action we take violates the law of God. It it, it means, however, that, that we are holistically and completely so tainted by our sin and rebellion that we are completely and totally lost. And as a result, I just emphasize this because this is foundational. I'm saying most people don't see this to be true. It's true. As a result, hell is a place that is our default destination. That's a sobering truth. Secondly, look at this. It's a place of total separation. It's a place of total separation. It's our default destination. It's a place of total separation. It's Matthew 7, 23. But I will reply, this is Jesus talking now. I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. So it's apart from me, you workers of evil. I never knew you. It's, it's, hell is a place of total separation. There will be a final judgment for all of us. And for those who, who have not received the grace of God, listen, there's total separation. You can't go to church enough. You can't do enough good. You can't do enough like religious works to overcome the sin debt you owe. The the only thing you can do is lean on the grace of God. And and apart from that, listen, there is judgment to come. and, And after that judgment, total separation from God. Some of you are thinking, man, that seems like a, a pretty severe consequence, you know, for like just sinning against God, like eternal separation, really, we have to understand the nature of who you're sinning against. Not every action has the same consequence. You can go home today and punch your sibling and that will not carry the same consequence as if you punch your coworker tomorrow or you punch your spouse or you punch the queen of England, which I recommend none of you do. 
the consequences are wildly different. You say, well, why would they be different? Because it's all about who the action is taken against. And when all of us, listen, all of us sin, rebel against the loving, good and holy God who made us to have fellowship with him, we are sinning against God in a way that rejects his eternal rule and reign. And therefore the consequences for that ongoing rejection and rebellion is eternal separation from him. It's all about who you're sinning against. And, and, and so as we think about hell and, and its gravity and its reality, we learn that it is our default destination and it's a place of total and complete separation. And then third, check this out. And it's a place where God's holy justice will be on display. God is just in this. He's just in the judgment. Revelation 16 says this, and I heard the angel who had authority over all water saying, you are just, O holy one, who is and who always was because you have sent these judgments. Since they shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, you have given them blood to drink. It is their just reward. And I heard a voice from the altar saying, yes, O Lord God, the almighty, your judgments are true and just. No one will raise a fist to Jesus on the day of judgment. They will bow the knee. If there's any grace in hell, it's the knowledge that everyone there deserves to be there. If your picture of the judgment is like some people rebelling against Jesus, angry with Jesus, you totally misunderstand the power and the glory of Jesus. There's nobody gonna be rebelling and rejecting Jesus in the judgment. They will be bowing the knee and they will receive whatever he renders to them because what he renders is just. It's just. And for every person that's not received his grace, every person that's not received his mercy, the judgment is sure and certain and make no mistake about it, it is just. And when that judgment comes, the realities from that point forward are, are incredibly sobering. Because here's the next thing we learn, that, that hell and its eternal state described for us as the lake of fire, it is a place of conscious torment. Revelation 14, the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever and they will have no relief day or night for they will have worshiped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. People have rejected God. That's what that's referring to. They, they, will, they will be sentenced to hell, total separation, God's justice on full display. And as a result, they're in a place of conscious torment. Next, notice it's a place also of ultimate darkness. Second Peter 2, these people are as useless as dried up springs. Talking about false teachers here, people who lead others away from the truth of God or a mist blown away by the wind. They are doomed to blackest darkness. It's also a place described as ongoing rebellion. Revelation 21, but, but no, just kind of categories here. Uh, uh, cowards, unbelievers, corrupt, murderers, immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, liars. Their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Notice that these people under the judgment of God are described by the categories that define their sin. They don't reach a place of repentance or accepting Christ, even under judgment. Russell Moore said this, the sinner in hell does not become morally neutral upon his sentence to hell. We must not imagine the condemned sinner displaying gospel repentance and longing for the presence of Christ. The condemned indeed are longing for an escape from punishment, but they are not new creations. They do not in hell love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Instead, they are now 
handed over to the full display of their natures apart from grace, natures that are satanic. Thus, the condemnation continues forever and ever and ever with no end in view, either for the sin or the punishment thereof. And therefore, the last description we have of hell in the, in the scriptures is that it is a place of eternal duration. Forever and ever and ever. Matthew 25, 46 says this, and they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Everyone lives forever somewhere. And if you're here today, you're watching us online today, and you have never asked Jesus to save you from your sin, you've never committed to him to be the Lord of your life, you've never known just the glory and the freedom of his salvation. I'm not talking about church attendance. I'm not talking about religious acts of righteousness or goodness. I'm not talking about pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can't do any of that stuff and get to God. You're not good enough. I'm talking about surrendering to the grace and the kindness of Jesus, asking him to forgive you, receiving him as Lord, living for him. Listen, if you've never made that decision, I urge you to do it today because hell is real. It is a place that is our default destination where there is total separation from God, where God's justice is on full display in the means of conscious torment and ultimate darkness, ongoing rebellion that will endure forever and ever and ever. It's a place of eternal duration. But here's the good news that we celebrate today. Here's why we're here today. Because God has given us a way of escape. God has given us a, a path forward. God has given us a redeemer and a savior to, to, to lead us to escape the, the wrath of his judgment that we deserve because Jesus came and he lived a sinless life and he took the wrath of God as a righteous substitute in our place on the cross and, and God poured out the wrath that you and I deserve, the eternal wrath that you and I deserve on his son who took it in our place and when he rose from the dead, he conquered death and hell for all who believe so that today we have not the horror of hell to look forward to, but the hope of heaven. And the hope of heaven indeed is our hope and it's a hope we must cling to. Heaven is a real place. The eternal state described for us actually as the new heavens and the new earth. It is a place that is glorious and a place that is like a renewed Eden. Here's what we know about heaven. Let me hit on these. First of all, heaven is a place of reunion. I love this. Can't wait for this. Heaven is a place of reunion. Let me give you one of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible, 1 Thessalonians 4. And now, dear brothers, Paul says, and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to believers who have died before us so that we will not grieve like others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have already died. We tell you this directly with a word from the Lord. This is what Jesus, he's saying, taught us specifically. We who are still alive when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have already died. See, they were, they were concerned that those who died before the second coming of Jesus would be lost forever. Jesus is like, no, 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 they're not lost forever. Actually, they're gonna be, they're gonna be first in line. <laughs> he says, for the Lord himself will come down 
from heaven with the commanding shout and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God and the, and, and, and the believers who have died will rise from their graves first. And then notice reunion now, I love this. And then we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up with, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and we will be together and we will be with the Lord forever. So he says, encourage one another with these words. Your family members, your friends who know Jesus, who have died, listen, they're not lost, they're with the Lord. We we know elsewhere in the New Testament, it says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And he says, there's also then gonna be a bodily resurrection for everyone, a resurrection unto life. And as we've already seen, a resurrection unto judgment. And for those who are resurrected unto life, Paul says, we will be together with the Lord, be encouraged. I think of my father-in-law that we lost 20 years ago who never saw my children. But my firstborn daughter named in part because he loved the name we gave her. He will meet her one day face to face and call her by her name. I think of my grandmother that we lost last year who was such an influence on me toward the Lord. She made the best bologna sandwiches. <laughs> I'm talking deli bologna, not the cheap stuff. I'm talking deli bologna with a little bit of lettuce and tomato and salt and pepper. And then of course, Miracle Whip, which is a miracle. And I just think one day we're going to, We're going to sit around the Lord's table and I'm going to have a bologna sandwich with my grandmother again. It just makes sense to me there'd be bologna in heaven. I don't know why, right? There's people in your life, maybe a parent, maybe a sibling, maybe a child, maybe a friend. Hear the encouragement of scripture. Heaven will be a place of sweet reunion. And that means a lot to us. And so we had a long for that day. We had a hope for that day. You know, in the same way, like, like do you remember, like, those of you who are married, man, do you remember what it was like, like, when you were dating, you weren't married yet? Do you, do you, do you remember, like, I remember this, like, just like, like a day or two apart from your, from your future spouse, it seemed like an eternity. Remember that? I just couldn't stand to be away. Oh, and it's like, Oh, like back then, this is gonna rock some of your worlds, okay? Just brace yourself, okay? There were no cell phones. Okay, so you could only talk when you weren't together through a phone that was plugged into a wall, right? And, and did some of you do that? I don't know if some, I, this is what, I, I remember doing this all the time. Like, like you'd be late at night, like, oh, I miss you. Oh, I miss you more. No, I miss you. And remember like you're laying in bed, let me, remember this, you're laying in bed. Did, did any of you do I love you so much. No, I love you more. No, I'm not falling asleep until, until you, no, I'm not gonna say, no, I'm not saying, I'm not saying goodnight, no. No, I love you, oh no, I love you more. No, you say goodnight. No, I'm not saying goodnight, no. <laughs> did anybody do that? Am I the only one who did that, right? And you know what? My wife is from another state. And so sometimes when she was home and out of state, we would do that. And then in a few weeks, my parents would come and say, I need you to explain this $400 phone bill. 
And mom and dad, I just want to say, I'm so sorry about that. Checks in the mail. You ever miss someone? Do you remember what it's like, like to long for someone? Like to be apart from someone? Like, oh, I just can't stand it. Man, here's the hope that we have. Paul's saying, encourage one another with these words. There's a reunion coming. And when that reunion happens, let me give you something else we see in scripture. We will recognize each other. We will know each other. Matthew 17, I love this. This is at the transfiguration of Jesus. Okay, Jesus in, 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 in his glorified state. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed. So his face shone like the sun and clothes became white as light. And then suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. Here's my point. When, when Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus, the disciples recognized them and knew who they were. We're going to know each other. We're going to recognize each other. I don't know what exactly, exactly what we're going to look like. Don't be sending me any emails. Are we going to have a belly button? Or I don't know. Okay. I'm pretty sure I'm going to have a smaller nose. Okay. But I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly what we're going to look like. But I, I know this. We're going to recognize each other and others. And in other words, let me say it this way. We're not going to know less in the eternal state than we know now. I think we'll recognize each other. We'll know each other talk with each other, share life together because heaven is a place of reunion. Secondly, it's a place of responsibility. I love this, Revelation 7, 15. That's why they stand in front of God's throne and they serve him day and night in his temple and, and he who sits on the throne will give them shelter. Now, now this, this is an indication to us that we will be working, we'll be serving, right? Um, we, we have indication elsewhere in the New Testament that, that we will be active in heaven. So if you think of heaven as a place, oh man, it's gonna be so boring and there's not gonna be anything to do and we're all gonna be playing harps, you are sadly mistaken. Heaven, again, is like a restored Eden and work is not something that God gave to us because of sin's presence in the world. God gave us work and responsibility before sin entered the world. And guess what that tells us? In the eternal state, we will have a lot to do. But here's the difference. What we do will no longer be frustrating to us. It will only be fulfilling. We will be active and engaged, working with each other, relating to each other. We will have responsibilities. Russell Moore said it this way, the eternal state is hardly inactivity for the redeemed, but instead work, work that is joyously freed from the frustration of a cursed earth. The new earth is not simply a restoration of Eden, but a glorious civilization with a city and the glory of the nations redeemed and brought into it. One can expect that the new earth would be abuzz with culture, music, painting, literature, architecture, commerce, agriculture, and everything that expresses the creativity of human beings as the image of God. Oh, heaven's going to be amazing. A place of reunion, a place of responsibility. Third, check this out. It's a place of reigning, a place of reigning and ruling. We will have responsibilities that involve leadership and oversight. Revelation 5 says this, and they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered, talking about Jesus, and your blood has ransomed people for, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. A new heavens and a new earth. Randy Alcorn said it this way, God's intention for humans was that we would occupy the whole earth and reign over it. This dominion would produce God-exalting societies in which we would exercise the creativity, imagination, intellect, and skills befitting beings created in God's image, thereby manifesting his attributes. We will have new bodies, no sin, no disease, no weakness, no aging. 
We will rule, we will reign, we will work, we will serve, we will be fulfilled in it. And, and, and therefore we will, we will encapsulate God's original design. In the new heavens and the new earth, kale will make you gain weight and ice cream will make you lose it. All right, come, hallelujah. <laughs> come on. You're gonna see your buddy Jim. Jim, man, you put on some weight. You better eat some more ice cream. Yes, sir, I'll get right to it, right? It's gonna be awesome, man. I mean, I'm talking glorified bodies. We're ruling and reigning. We have responsibilities that are meaningful and fulfilling, enjoying fellowship with one another. And it's gonna be awesome. And then, and then a place of rest also. It's a place, not just physical rest. I mean, I'm like, like no sin, no tragedy, no, no, no evil, no injustice, no rest. Revelation 14, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this down, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, they are blessed indeed for they will rest from their hard work for their good deeds. Follow them. Man, it's gonna be awesome. Then check this out. It's a place of reward. Heaven is a place that's, re that's we'll have rewards for our obedience and our faithfulness to Jesus. Second Corinthians 5. So whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged and we will receive whatever we deserve for the good or the evil we've done on the, in the earthly body. If you think just because you're a Christ follower on your way to heaven that your obedience now doesn't matter, you are sadly mistaken. Amen. Someone said it this way. All of our glasses will be full, but not everyone will have the same size glass. We all get the same heaven. We don't all get the same reward. And the reward we manifested in part through the varying responsibilities that we have. Hell, by the way, will have varying degrees of punishment and torment. And heaven will be a place with varying degrees of reward. Everyone fulfilled, not everyone with the same responsibility. Listen, your obedience now matters. So heaven's a place of reunion, a place of responsibility, a place where we reign, a place where we rest, a place of reward. And then just two more really quick, a place of, of reconciliation. Heaven's described for us as a place of reconciliation with each other and with Jesus. You're not gonna have to worry about seeing somebody that you don't like on this earth and be like, hey man, I've been meaning to talk to you about this. It just took me 485 years to do it. Okay, no, like reconciliation with God and others. Revelation 21 says this, and I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. We will have perfect reconciliation with God and others. And then finally, and most importantly, heaven is a place of worship. Man, awesome. Revelation 14 says this, and I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of mighty ocean waves or the rolling of, of loud thunder. It was like sound of many harpists playing together. Harpists were big back then. Okay, this great choir sang wonderful new songs in front of the throne of God and before the four living beings and 24 elders. And no one could learn the songs except the 144,000 who've been redeemed from the earth. I don't wanna hear your theories about the 144,000. Jesus will correct all of those when you see him face to face. Here's the point. The point is we will be with Jesus forever and we will sing his praise and we will worship him and his glory. Revelation 22 says it this way. Yes, Revelation 22. Check it out, I love it. No longer will there be a curse upon anything for the throne of God and the lamb will be there and the servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads and there'll no longer be any night there, no need for lamps or sun. The Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. We will be with Jesus. And so let me just boil all of this down very simply for you today. 
despite what our culture says, we don't have every answer about every detail of heaven. Because the who of heaven is way more important than the what. And I could write a book and it would sell a lot of copies if I were to delve more into the what. With a little bit of sanctified speculation, there's interest there. The reason God didn't give us a vision of heaven focusing on the what is because you know what? Ultimately, heaven is about the who. And so as you think about the eternal state today, you think about specifically heaven today, the new heavens and new earth, if you think about rest or reunion or rejoicing or reigning or responsibility, to the extent that you think very little about Jesus, you have the wrong idea about what heaven is like. <laughs> because the ultimate glory of heaven is that Jesus will be there. And that's what's most exciting to me. And because Jesus is there, sin will not be there. And because Jesus is there, suffering will not be there. And because Jesus is there, broken relationships will not be there. And because Jesus is there, frustrating work will not be there. Because Jesus is there, only love, only joy, only peace, only fulfillment, because Jesus is there. And so we're not gonna get lost in the what, we're gonna focus on the who. God's given us enough of the what to get excited. But he's given us the who so we can get there. <laughs>